Okay, if you'd like to turn in your Bible to Second Timothy chapter 4. We're on the final chapter now of this uh, incredible letter, this last letter that Paul seems to have written. And it really is kind of a farewell statement. It's kind of very much Paul's last will and testament. We've seen how Paul has gone through in his letters to Timothy and just encouraging Timothy to not compromise on doctrine under any circumstances. Also, though, just to show love um, and to endure uh, despite the challenges and the trials. Um, there was something um, that Joy mentioned to me last night. I think Premier Radio have put out recently something about seven reasons why those in ministry uh, are failing or giving up. Um, and it had a whole list of different reasons. You know, it, it is tough in ministry, but it's tough as a Christian if you're actively serving the Lord. You know, the devil will seek to do whatever he can to discourage you, to just make it hard. And there'll be all sorts of other options that will be presented to you that just seems so much easier. But, you know, Jesus never promised us an easy road, but he promised us incredible rewards. And the most important and the greatest of all rewards is eternity with Jesus himself. So Paul's gone through all of that with Timothy, and then he's encouraged him, if you remember back in chapter 2 particularly, you know, saying that, you know, you've got to be like a soldier. Don't get entangled with the things of this world. You've got to be like an athlete running to win, and you've got to be like a a, a farmer, somebody who's going out and, and, and working hard to plough the field. And he's given all these instructions. He says in chapter 2, verse 15, to study, to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. How important the word of God was to Paul, and he's impressing that upon Timothy. And Timothy, we're told already, we've seen it, that from a young child knew the Holy Scriptures. What a great influence his own mother and grandmother had been in his own life. And Paul has reminded him that the word of God is so, so important. He says all scripture is given by inspiration of God, is breathed by God. Every verse, every word, every number, every place name. You know, the details in the Bible are phenomenal. Last night we were talking uh, with the girls, we were reading at bedtime, and we were just talking about how many books are in the Bible. How many books are in the Bible, anybody? Anybody? Seventy. Because the book of Psalms is divided into five books. You see, God works, and we, we all go with 66 and that's fine, but there are actually 70 books. If you take the book of Psalms, it's divided into five books, which it actually is. There's 70, that's no coincidence. God works in multiples, in numbers, in, all the way through scripture. And sevens we see repeated throughout, and 70 is a number that occurs so many times in so many contexts. Everything's there for a reason. How many nations are there in the world according to the Bible? Seventy. How many children of Israel were that went into Egypt according to the Bible? Seventy. There's lots of these things. There's lots of threads you can draw together. You know, and we have this, this incredible book that gives us everything we need. It's complete for, for all the nations of the world. Everything that we could possibly want or need to know is here. All scripture is God-breathed. It's, it's a travesty that modern versions or some modern versions translate this. All scripture that is God-breathed 
Oh, no, no, that's a very different thing. Because it's implying that some of the things we've got in the Bible are not God-breathed. No, no, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's all the breath of God. And we're told again, as we saw last time, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we may be complete, that we'd have everything we need. That's what the Word of God is there for. Everything in the Word of God is there for our, for our, our learning, that we may grow, that we may be complete. My my mum used to make um, this soup, and Joy is going to try and make some of this soup this week. And it's the most strange kind of thing, and it's got this very strange kind of consistency to it. But apparently it was good for me. Mum put in there all sorts of things that I didn't like. And she blended it all together, so I couldn't tell what it was. And it was just about palatable. Um, And we used to call it mum's medicine. You know, there's portions of the Word of God that are a little bit like that. We don't understand them. There's things that are maybe harder to read or harder to understand. Uh, there's other bits that we love and we enjoy all the time, you know, like chocolate or, you know, there's things like that in the Word of God that we just want bits we go to. But all of Scripture is there for our, for our health as well. You know, that's why it's so important to, to read systematically through the Bible and try and do it year on year, every year. Just try and read through from Genesis to Revelation. It doesn't matter whether you've got a Bible reading plan, you do a bit from the New Testament, a bit from the Old, or whatever you do. There's all sorts of ways of doing it. Chuck Misler used to read, used to have seven bookmarks in his Bible. He used to have one, I think, if I remember rightly, in the Torah. And he used to go through the Torah, those first five books of the Bible, and then one in the history books of the Old Testament, the one in the prophets, um, and then one in the Gospels, and then one in the rest of the New Testament, and then there's a couple of others in various places. And, and just going through the whole of Scripture. And every day you should just try and read a bit from each section. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons Chuck Mizzler came up and saw so many of these these links and these parallels and these ties, because he was reading so many bits from various places, and he started seeing the connections. It's all God-breathed. It's all God's work. And so, this isn't just a flowery introduction, because we get into verse 1 of chapter 4, and Paul says, I charge thee, therefore... So we've got to understand, whenever you see a therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. Okay, good basic rules in scripture. I charge you therefore before God. Because of all that Paul has said to this point, because of this incredible word that we've been given, because of this fight, this battle that we're in, because of this need to carry on, to stand in the grace that is uh, given by Jesus. Paul says, I charge thee. It's like a military term. I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Some would have that, that it's simply saying, charge thee, therefore, before God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Stating that Jesus is God. Of course, that's true. We know it's true. Charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're told who shall judge the, the quick, those that are living and the dead, at his appearing and kingdom. We're just going to come on to that in a second. But just to set the scene here, Paul was alone at this point. He was incarcerated in this prison in Rome. He'd been imprisoned. He'd been released. And and seemingly, from what we understand, he'd gone off into Spain uh, to try and preach the gospel there. And then very suddenly he'd been arrested and brought back to Rome. And he knew at this point that his final appointment was drawing near. He's not ashamed. He's not intimidated. He's not worried about what the world can do. You know, we need to all be aware that we have such an appointment. 
you know, our final exam, as it were, has been scheduled. You know, and, and one of the interesting things when you look at many of the kings of the Old Testament is they didn't finish well. And it's one of the big challenges to Christians that we need to finish well. You know, it's encouraging as we were hearing this morning, you know, as people grow in their Christian life to want to study scripture. You know, so many people get to that point that they kind of put it to one side. But as we grow, we should want more of God. The exam, of course, though, is 100% coursework. You know, back in the day, I'm sure some of you remember at school, you know, exams were exams. You went and you sat your exam and that was it. But then things changed and many exams now are, are, are based largely or entirely on coursework. There's not actually a final sat written exam. It's what you've done throughout. Well, that's what our Christian life is all about. It's what we've done during our lives. Now, of course, we've been saved. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're assured of your salvation. But the rewards, well, that's dependent upon how you've served him. 1 Corinthians 3 is your go-to scripture for that. By the way, the result has already been determined before the day arrives. Uh, we're given very clear uh, details in scripture about how we should live and the consequences that we were mentioning again earlier. So I just want to talk to you a little bit about the judgments though. Because we hear that it says, Paul says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. And I thought it might be helpful just to look at the judgments that are coming. The first judgment that we've got on the world scene, seemingly from this point on, is recorded in Ezekiel 38. And we're going to see the first of a number of judgments on Israel's oppressors. We're going to see what would appear to be a Russian-led Islamic invasion of Israel. Now, maybe 30 years ago people would have questioned that. But now, there's no need to question it. We've got Israeli, uh, sorry, we've got Russian troops that are doing these exercises, getting ready. We've got them on the borders of Syria, right next to Israel. Iran, of course, have stated their aggression towards Israel, how they want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. You know, this is so close. But as a result of it, what we're told in Ezekiel 38 is that God will judge Israel's enemies and that those enemies of Israel will be destroyed. Or at least the majority of them, or at least just a small percentage left. So that's one of the first judgments that we're going to see. And it's part of a series of judgments that God will then bring on those that are oppressing Israel. The next judgment that we see scripturally would seem to be the Bema's seed of Christ, or the judgment seed of Christ, as it's sometimes referred to. We again have 1 Corinthians 3 that speaks of this, and 2 Corinthians 5.10, which tells us that we must all appear at the judgment seat, the Bema's seat of Christ. And it's an award ceremony, for want of a better expression. It's when the, each believer, is, when we're caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air, and we're taken back to the place he's prepared for us, there'll be this time of, of judgment where we will be awarded depending on how we've lived our lives. If we put our treasure in heaven, then we'll be rewarded. There are many scriptures, we'll look at some in a while, but um, that speak of the, the danger of losing those things for which we've worked. There is a real danger that we could lose the things that we've worked for. There's no guarantee that what you've done previously in your Christian life will stand you in good stead for all that is to come. It's an ongoing faithfulness that the Lord is looking for. He's looking for us to become overcomers. 
The next judgment that we see is at the time of the second coming of Jesus. And it's really the second judgment that scripturally we see on Israel's oppressors. When the nations of the world will be gathered together against Israel, seeking to destroy them. And I encourage you to look at just Zechariah 12, amongst other scriptures, which deals with this whole issue, that the nations will be gathered together. They will uh, congregate in the, the valley of Megiddo, the place we refer to as Armageddon. And from there, they're going to launch this attack on Israel, who by this point will have left their land. They'll have been forced to flee from their land three and a half years or so before this point. They'll be living in Jordan, in this area of Jordan, or seemingly Petra, as uh, from a scriptural perspective. And they'll be protected there. They'll be safe there. But the nations and the armies of the world are going to gather together with the intent of destroying Israel. But the Lord is going to come back. We're told as, as when he fought in the day of battle. When did that occur? Well, seemingly with the, the, the battle of Jericho. If you remember, really, the Lord did all the, the hard stuff. Israel just went in and, and mopped up afterwards. Well, that's going to be exactly the same at the second coming. Jesus is going to return and he's going to destroy Israel's enemies at that point, those that have been amassed against Israel. Antichrist himself will be destroyed at that point. He'll be the, the leader of the world's governments at that point. And that will be immediately followed by the, the sheep and the goat nations judgment that we read about in Matthew 25. You know, the nations will be gathered and, and the Lord is going to judge us between the sheep and the goats. Those that have treated Israel, Jesus' brethren, well, will be rewarded. And they'll be given a portion in the millennial kingdom of Christ. But the nations that have oppressed Israel, well, they'll be judged. Then we get the third judgment, if you like, on Israel's oppressors. I suppose you could actually say fourth in a sense because the um, the sheep and the goats judgment is specifically about those nations that have oppressed Israel. But at the end of Revelation 20, at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, after Jesus has returned and reigned on this earth for a thousand years, the nations of the world will again march against Israel and Jesus will again intervene and destroy them. And then finally we get to the great white throne judgment. That's the final. That's what most people, when they talk about Judgment Day, that's what they're thinking of. It's when everybody gets to stand before God. That is everybody who is not yet saved. Those who are saved have already been judged. When were we judged? Well, we were judged on a cross in Judea some 2,000 years ago. That's when God's wrath fell upon you and I. But it didn't fall on us, it fell on Jesus. And anybody that's put their trust in Jesus, Calvary was the point of our judgment. So the great white throne judgment is for everybody who is not saved. And we find that those who are dead, those who are in Hades, those who have uh, died at sea and so on, the death and hell will give up the dead that is in them, the sea will give up the dead that is in them, and they will all stand before the throne of God. And we're told that they will be judged according to their works. I can't think of anything more frightening. You know, most other religions, particularly Islam, you know, but most other religions have this works-based salvation plan. That if you do this, then, you know, you should, your good works should outweigh, outweigh your bad works. Well, there's no court of law in this world that would accept that kind of judgment. You know, if I was in my car and I was speeding down Park Lane here and I got stopped by the police, 
And it was a serious offence, and they, they brought me before a judge. And I said, but judge, I've driven down that road many, many times at the speed limit. Do you think the judge would say, oh, well, that's okay, Mr. Ford, well, we'll, we'll excuse you then. No, no, you'd be judged according to the offence you've committed. It doesn't matter what you've done. What you've done is all the good stuff. That's what you should have done. And people that have this mindset that they're going to be let off because of their good works is, is so foolish a notion because you're not being judged or compared because of your good works. It's all the, the things you've done in disobedience, in rebellion to God. And God's standard is so much higher than ours, believe me. Right? Don't believe me, believe scripture because you only got to look at what Jesus says in Matthew's gospel. I mean, Jesus simply says that you know, even if you have anger or hatred in your heart towards your brother, that's as bad as murder. That, that's how high God's standard is. Well, we wouldn't say that's, that's a bad crime. No, God's standard is so high. And at that judgment seat, the books will be opened. Which books? Well, I believe that there'll be 70 books that will be opened. Because these books contain all the laws, all the rules, everything we need to know. Nobody's going to be able to say, well, I didn't know. Nobody told me. Ignorance will not be an excuse. And we're told those whose names were not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. So those are the judgments that are coming. But there is another judgment. It's a judgment that actually would seemingly precede all of these. And it's a judgment that we're starting to see right now. And it's one that we're told about in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. And it's one that I would refer to as the coming judgment of the church. In 1 Peter 4, 17, it says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Or another way of phrasing this would be, the season of judgment has begun. And it's going to start at the house of God. And I believe we're seeing this. I did a study some years ago, and maybe in the next few weeks, I'll just pray about this, see if this is of the Lord or not. But I broke this down into three sections, just looking at the apostasy in the last days, what's going on. The way that so many churches are abandoning the word of God. And many, many other things. And then looking at the comparison between the way it was in Israel's time to the way it is with the church. And actually, we have a great lesson already given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says, look at Israel. See the mistakes they made. Don't make the same mistakes. And you look at it and you go, oops, oops, we've made all the same mistakes. You look at Israel after they came out of Egypt. What an incredible miracle that must have been, seeing them delivered from the bondage and slavery of Egypt, coming through the Red Sea. Imagine that. And I think, you can challenge me on this if you want to have a conversation, I think from what scripture says, that the Lord sent this wind to part the sea, and it caused the sea to become like ice. We're told it became congealed. Well, that's like ice. And I think this strong wind effectively caused it to become ice, so that on the the furthest side of the, the shores of the Red Sea, where they were heading to, the ice would have been thickest and thinnest at the Egyptian end. And of course, as the Egyptians get in, the walls of the... Red Sea come crashing down. But just imagine, however God did this, I'm not trying to explain away the miracle, it's still a miracle. But however God did this, what an incredible experience for the children of Israel to walk through the Red Sea like this. And then see all the things that God did, providing the food, the quail that just blew in off the, the sea one day when they were complaining they wanted to meat. And then the manna that they found on the ground. 
following that. Seeing the Lord come down on top of Mount Sinai, the whole mountain being on fire. Seeing all of those things. And then they go and build a golden calf. And you and I think, how could they do that? And then they start their journeys in the wilderness and they start grumbling, complaining and murmuring and so on. And you think, how could they do that? Well, again, 1 Corinthians 10, just read it, you'll see the comparison. You know, everything they did, every mistake they made, we've made. And in fact, we've probably got it even worse. Because we've had their example to learn from and we've still, as the church, failed terribly. It's an incredible comparison looking at the history of Israel and looking at the history of the, the Christian church. And then the final part of this is the, the one world church. And this is right before our eyes now. We're seeing these things going on. The, the links between the, the Catholic church, the Vatican and Islam. Both have this veneration of Mary. Both have this unspoken, well for Islam it's not unspoken, but hatred of, of Israel and the Jews. And particularly this understanding that Jerusalem must be, remain an international city. The Vatican has said that on many occasions. But all other religions as well, all starting to merge together. Just as scripture reveals, that we will end up with this one world inclusive church. That's a popular word today, isn't it? Inclusive. And that leads on to what we read in Revelation 17, 18. Which I believe, although it's positioned towards the end of the book of Revelation, if you do a diligent study in Revelation, that will occur during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. That this church, this world church, will have great power and great authority. But the governments of the world, the kings, the rulers of this world at that point, will get halfway through that seven year period and they'll have had enough of this religious system. And they'll seek to destroy it. And the last portion of the tribulation, the last seven years, last three and a half years, it will be Antichrist ruling and reigning. And this one more church will have been destroyed. And Revelation 17 and 18, then they're not two different things. People speak of a, a religious Babylon and a political Babylon and so on. Uh, I think that's just a misunderstanding. Revelation uh, 17 just speaks about this great whore, this, this, this religious system that is an abomination to God. And then Revelation 18 details the judgment. They're both important, they're both connected. But this judgment is coming, it's coming on the church, and we're seeing it even now. And one of the key scriptures is when we go to Matthew chapter 13. And we're told there about the tares that were planted in the field. And of course the question is, well shouldn't we go and gather up all the tares? And the response that Jesus gives is no, because if you gather up all the tares, you might gather up the wheat with it. And it's very difficult to tell the difference between the wheat and the tares. They look identical, these, these crops that grow in Israel, in the Middle East, in that region. The only real difference is at the time of the harvest, this really happens, at the time of the harvest, the grain on top of the wheat is so heavy that it bows its head. Whereas the tares just stay bow upright. It just speaks of that pride, as opposed to the humility of the true believers. And pride is something we see much of in the church today. The letter that Jesus gave us to the church of Laodicea speaks a lot of the pride of this final world church. Thinking that it is increased with goods, it has everything it needs, it doesn't need anything. And yet the Lord says, but you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. All those things 
very pertinent to the church at Laodicea at that time. It all has learned great lessons for us. Again, we might do a, a more detailed study in these things um, in the weeks to come. But this is what we read in Scripture. So all those judgments are coming, and the judgment of the church is coming, where we're told again back in Matthew 13, that before the rapture of the church, before the wheat are gathered into his barn, the tares will be gathered into bundles. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now. We're seeing those tares gathered into bundles. We're seeing them being grouped together. Again, all under this kind of inclusive banner and so on. Those that stand out, the true believers, those that build and base their lives upon God's word, we will become more and more exposed, we'll become more and more in the limelight because we're not willing to compromise. God's word is true from the beginning, we're told. And we're not going to change it because of some cultural issue at this time. Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel. Paul wasn't ashamed of the word of God. And there was many things going on in his days, such as there are today, and he wasn't prepared to, to compromise anywhere. And so we carry on. Verse 2, preach the word. So this is Paul again. I'm just going back to verse 1. I charge you, therefore, before God, who's going to come and who's going to judge everything, I charge you to preach the word is what he says to Timothy. Time is running out. We must preach the word. We must be instant in season and out of season. I mean, isn't it incredible? Again, in light of what Jim said earlier, you know, looking at the way the church is now, how many churches are not preaching the word? How many churches are choosing to do other things? And It's amazing how many will show media clips of popular films or whatever. And they'll try and bring some Christian message into that. We don't need that. We've got the word of God. No, Paul, knowing exactly where this world was going, and we saw it all detailed for us in chapter 3, he says, preach the word. He's charging Timothy to preach the word. This isn't, Timothy, I think this would be a good idea for you and your congregation to do. He says, no, I charge you before God. Preach the word, be instant, in season and out of season. Evangelist Barry Smith from New Zealand used to say, that means when it's convenient and when it's not convenient. Preach the word when people want to hear and when they don't want to hear. Reprove, rebuke and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. You know, at the end of the day, that's our, our, our default position. We come back to the Bible, back to the Word of God. This isn't our doctrine. This isn't our opinions. This isn't something that we have created. This is what has been handed down from Jesus to the apostles. This is the foundation of the church. This is what we believe. And this will not change. We have to preach the Word. That Word, again... Be instant, it's uh, diligent, or it can be translated also urgent. That's how we should be. You know, are we urgent? Do we look for every possible opportunity? Interesting again, the Paul doesn't say preach from the word, but preach the word. And that reprove, again, 
with conviction is how we're to do that. Uh, the rebuke, the word actually implies threaten. Because people need to realize that there is a judgment coming. Paul's already highlighted that God is coming. He's going to be the God who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing. People need to realize they can't just carry on and think they're going to get away with it. It's amazing what people do to protect themselves in this life. They'll take out all sorts of insurance policies or whatever. But they never think about what's coming. They never think about eternity. And that exalts comfort. There's never been a better time to comfort people from the scripture because we live in a world and at a time where so many people don't feel very comforted. Looking at the political scene, looking at all that's going on, looking at just the crime that we see going on around us. You know, and, and none of us are, are, are ignorant of what's going on in this country and around the world and the crimes. He, yesterday, this, this shooting in Texas, yet another one. You know, and it's a daily occurrence in London that somebody's going to get stabbed or shot. You know, there's a lot of people out there that want comfort. And we have a book that gives comfort. You know, we mustn't keep this to ourselves. We're told for the time will come, and I believe the time has come. Some 2,000 years ago, Paul penned this and sent it off to Timothy. And said that the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. I think we are living right in those days that Paul was speaking of right now. For the time has come that they don't endure sound doctrine anymore. They don't want to hear the truth. The truth is too controversial. It's too divisive. You can't say Jesus is the way, the truth, the life anymore. That upsets people. But you know, Jesus was more narrow-minded than, than sorry, more, more open-minded than, than all these people. They, they talk about being narrow-minded and us being dogmatic, and yet they only give you one option. They say that all roads are leading to one place. And Jesus, there's two options, smoking or non-smoking, effectively. But the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, because of what they want for themselves. They shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Oh, how sad that we have pulpits around this land with teachers who are quite happy to say what the congregation want to hear. Popular preachers. Happy just to say the right thing so they can carry on and it's nice and easy and nice and comfortable. What a heap of teachers we have coming out of Bible colleges and seminaries and so on. Just their faith totally undermined. And they go in with maybe some belief and some faith and they're told, well, you don't have to take this seriously and that's not true and Moses didn't write that and that, we don't have to believe that. That was just poetry and that's not really true. And, and they come out with their faith destroyed and they're given opportunities to go and teach congregations. And what are they left with? Nothing. They've effectively told that this isn't true and they can't trust it. And so they get up and they, they start to, to speak and, well, they have to go to the Lion King. Because what else have they got? They've been told that the Bible's not true. They've been told we can't trust it. Nonsense. We talked a few weeks ago, last week, whenever. It just, how 
utterly trustworthy in every regard the Bible is. From a historical, a mathematical perspective, a geographical perspective, from a philosophical perspective. Every, every angle you, you want to come at with the Bible, it's trustworthy. It's true. But we've got a generation now that has done just this. They, they don't endure sound doctrine because of their own lust. They've heaped themselves teachers having itching ears. And so many churches, they get to vote on which pastor they have. If they don't like what the pastor says, well, they vote him out. They get another one who says what they want them hit, want to hear. You know, it really is, as we said a moment ago, the, the church of Laodicea that we're living in these days. And we're told, unless you return uh, they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned under fables. You know, and there's so many people that are willing to have that happen, they're willing to go along with it. Even though many people kind of, in the back of their minds, they know the truth. Many of them, like Timothy, were brought up knowing the scriptures. But you know, it's a lot easier to say, well, all roads lead to God and God's a God of love so nobody's going to go to hell and we don't have to worry and, you know. One commentator said this, that they commit themselves to the noise rather than the signal, attributing their origin to a random accident. They wonder why they have no sense of destiny. Okay. We'll leave it there this morning because we want to get into this. Um, I, I just enjoyed so much going through Timothy uh, and I don't want to... Um, rush through this last bit because there's so much here as Paul kind of signs off and speaks to Timothy and really hands the baton over to him in an incredible way and we will look at that there's some really great things to come uh, in these last few verses let's bow our hearts Father we just thank you for this morning we thank you for this reminder Lord of the days that we're living in that people are heaping to themselves teachers that say exactly what they want to hear they have itching ears And Lord, we may only be few in number, but Lord, we praise and thank you that we can stand on the truth of your word, your word that never changes. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for this foundation. And we pray, Lord, that you help us to be bold in our conversations, to preach the word. Lord, just as Timothy was charged to preach the word by Paul, so, Lord, We pray you charge us to preach the word in season and out of season to convince, to rebuke, to exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Lord, help us to be such that we'll proclaim your word. And Father, grant us favor in the ears of those that we speak to. Lord, we pray you create divine appointments, people that you lay across our path that we can speak to, people that need to be comforted by your word, people that need to be rebuked by your word. Lord, give us the confidence, we pray, to do these things in these days that remain. Lord, we recognize that the days are short. And so we pray, Father, for grace, your grace that enables us to stand. Lord, because of all that you have taught us, all that you've shown us, Lord, enable us, we pray, by your spirit and by your grace to go and be ambassadors for you. We ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.